Okay, um, I'm going to start reading from chapter 7, verses 14, to chapter 8, verse 15. So that w- you will find that in um, page 44. Thank you. So I'll give you a moment. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait at the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish of the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron to take your staff and stretch stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds, and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and the stone jars. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and in his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the water smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptians' magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let my people go, I will plague you, your whole country, with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palaces and into your bedrooms, onto your beds, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will go up on you and your people and your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to the Pharaoh, I leave I leave to you the honour of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses will be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said, 
Moses replied, It will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The, th the frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs and brought that he had brought on Pharaoh. Uh, sorry, that the frogs he had bought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the lands reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Well, uh, Scott's asked me to uh, look after this week and next week, um, and so we're going to continue our journey through Exodus, which is uh, very exciting, um, what Scott's already begun the first few weeks looking at. Uh, as usual, there's outline. Uh, I've framed my outline for the talk today in five questions. Um, you'll see as we uh, unpack each of those uh, how we're going. Um, we've got a massive job, uh, ten plagues today, four chapters. Uh, I don't know what Scott was thinking when he gave it to me, <laughs> but then he was going on holidays, so maybe we do know what he was thinking. Um, it, it's, we, we didn't read it all because Peter's already said we don't want to be here till lunchtime, and uh, I, 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 we are going to spend a bit of time on this today, so I'm sorry about that. It's, it's very difficult. I've so much I wanted to talk about that I'm not going to, so I'll just contain myself this morning. Um, but it is worth reading the whole lot, uh, if you haven't. Um, there are some amazing patterns. You know how uh, what um, Genesis 1, as you read that, there are patterns that just sort of open up the meaning of what uh, it's all about. It's the same in the, these plagues as well. So if you haven't, I really commend you to have a, a bit more of a read this week, a little bit more of a think about uh, what's happening in these plagues. Uh, I've got to say, I was really excited, actually, when Scott mentioned that this was the passage for us to, to look at this and next week. Uh, I, I kind of think the, this is the, the very high point of the Old Testament. This is the best uh, of the Old Testament. This is kind of the gospel of the Old Testament. This is, this is where it all happens. Uh, so it's wonderful to, to be able to spend some time thinking about it. Uh, I'd be interested if you disagree or if you've got other passages that you think might be the high point. Um, and a actually, for me, as I speak, I, I don't see this as one way. I know um, I'm up here, I've got the microphone, but if you disagree or have a comment or a question, please interrupt. Uh, I, I think I'm not the one with all the knowledge here. Uh, I know that there are many here who have spent a lot more time looking at these passages, a lot more time in life. So if you have a comment or a question, please, if you're brave, you know, you might like to break that habit and uh, say something, please do. I welcome that uh, sort of thing as well. Well, let's get into it. Um, so far, it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? Uh, we've been travelling with Moses, okay? We started with this baby at risk, uh, prince of Egypt, outlawed shepherd, uh, and then an 80-year-old reluctant rescuer of Israel. Um, but that, uh, the journey didn't begin with Moses, did it? Uh, the journey, in fact, begins a lot earlier, back at Genesis 1. So would you like to start with me, Genesis 1, um, 
it's a good idea to have your Bibles open. It's good to follow the passages. Uh, if you prefer to sit back, relax, maybe note some passages down on the outline, whatever works for you. But if you can have your Bibles open, I think that is, uh, is very helpful. Now, back in Genesis 1, verse 28, we actually get the first picture of what God's plans are with this world that he's just created. Let's have a look at verse 28. God blessed them, who? Adam and Eve. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Right there at the beginning, we see what God's plan is for, humani for humanity, for people. It is that they be blessed, that they be fruitful, that, but that they multiply across this planet, that they look after the animals, uh, that they fill the earth. Of course, we, we know what goes wrong fairly quickly uh, and sort of sin and mankind's decisions spiral out of control as they constantly make decisions that are away from God's good plan. Eventually we get to Genesis 12. Now, we all know this, Scott, I think every week has mentioned these great promises that God made to Abraham. So I thought this morning we might just have another look at them and actually read them. So Genesis 12 at verse 1. And there we read, Yahweh had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So there we have uh, creation, God's plans for humanity that they multiply, uh, and now focused in on one man, Abraham. Uh, and the promises here uh, that God chooses this man and his family, that in particular, that, that uh, blessing from Genesis 1, that creation mandate is going to be focused now on Abraham and his family. And uh, God's promise that he'll make Abraham into a mighty nation. And I guess we'd agree, at, at the time of Exodus, he's done that. Uh, he's made his name great. Uh, let's jump over to Exodus uh, very quickly. So we are getting to Exodus quickly. Uh, Exodus 1. Uh, and verse 6 and 7, very quickly we know what the story is for these people. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Hear the echoes of Genesis 1? It's all happening for them. Through the promises to Abraham, now the nation has multiplied. They are a massive number. But he also promises to give Abraham land, and that's not in sight, is it? They're in Egypt. Things are not going all that well there. They don't own that land. They're waiting... Are they waiting? Are they even thinking of land? I don't know. Maybe that's been lost in their history. But there they are. And what's happening? Well, we have a pharaoh, a new king, a pharaoh who fears the multitudes. So it's interesting, isn't it? God has blessed these people that they be great, but pharaoh now is fearing what God is doing. 
Uh, and this Pharaoh says no to the God of Israel. Okay, if we move a few verses forward to verse 8, then this new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So Pharaoh introduces God's people to ruthless slavery. Uh, they will not go free. They will not be allowed to go free. How dare they even consider that they might leave his country? Uh, Pharaoh oppresses God's people. Um, we, we saw what would happen when the, there's a bit of discussion. Well, Pharaoh removes the um, straw. They must still make the same number of bricks. So uh, there's, there's not, no negotiation. They're not leaving for a little bit. None of that's going to happen. Uh, and Pharaoh even goes as far as to put the firstborn sons of Israel to death, doesn't he? Terribly callous. There will be no mercy to this people. And so begins the story for today, the great rescue of Israel. But it's not a rescue story. It is, but it's not only a rescue story. Uh, this is, in fact, an epic battle between two powerful kings. And the question is, who has control over Israel? Is it Yahweh, their God, or is it Pharaoh, their king? At the moment, it's very obvious who is in control. It is Pharaoh. In fact, so much so... When Moses comes and says to Pharaoh, we're out of here, well, Pharaoh has other, other thoughts. Jump over to Exodus 5. Uh, this, this is the very heart of the battle that is about to begin here in Exodus 5 verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh and I will not let Israel go. Now so far, if this was a boxing match, we've just seen a few jabs thrown. But the battle is about to begin. And if Pharaoh does not know Yahweh, and do we remember what Yahweh means? Scott spent a bit of time a few weeks ago. I will be who I will be. I am who I am kind of thing. It's a name that is filled with meaning and action. Well, you know, maybe Pharaoh's right. He doesn't know Yahweh yet. But boy, he's about to meet him, isn't he? Is that making sense? This is sort of the background to where we've come to now. Every so I'll just stop and say, is this making sense? And give you a chance to sort of swallow it, tell me no, it's not making sense, or comment. Okay. Well, Pharaoh's about to learn who Yahweh is. Um, each, in, in each of these plagues, if you want to jump over to Exodus 7 now, uh, in each of these plagues, we actually are going to see the power of God at work. They are three sets of three plagues, each one carefully planned out. It's not like, um, you know, God throws the first plague at Egypt and, oh dear, that wasn't enough. What are we going to do next? Okay, we'll do the next plague. 
Now, they're all planned out from the very beginning, and we can see that, because God is active in, with Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart is hardened, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God says right at the beginning to Moses, he's not going to let you go, so be prepared. The, this, this is going to be a battle, it's going to be drawn out, it's going to be long, so be ready for that. Now, so each one's planned out, each increases in intensity before they culminate in that tenth, that ultimate plague that brings death to Egypt's firstborn. There's um, quite interesting parallel there, isn't there? If Pharaoh will do this, well, he's getting back what he's doing. Let's, uh, let's look at each of these plagues. There's ten of them. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them. We haven't got all day. Well, the first of the plagues strike at the heart of Egypt. Uh, when I think of Egypt, I think of pyramids and Nile. That's kind of it, isn't it? Well, here, it's straight the River Nile. Um, now, what's the deal with this blood? We've heard some people sort of think, oh, it's a reflection of the sun. It's a bit of a load of rubbish like that would kill fish and stink. Uh, we've heard people who talk about algae blooms, that maybe that's what's caused it. Maybe. I mean, if it is, that's pretty miraculous that God just says there's going to be an algae bloom tomorrow and bam, there it goes. Uh, whether it's really blood, whether it's something else... It doesn't matter, it's everywhere, okay? This blood-like substance, it's in the river, it's in the bowls, it's in their buckets, it's absolutely everywhere. The fish die, the land stinks. Uh, Pharaoh, well, the almighty Pharaoh, in so much control of his land, can't even control his own river. Uh, and I think there's a bit of symbolism here if... Pharaoh continues, blood is going to be through the land. We know that's the case. Uh, I suspect there's a little bit of a warning here for Pharaoh. The second plague, we see frogs. Not your cute little Kermit the Frog, but little icky, slimy frogs, and they're everywhere. Uh, they're in the beds, they're in the pots, they're in the ovens, they're absolutely across the land. Um, the magicians show how good they are because they produce more frogs. Right, so that was a problem having frogs, but now we've got more frogs. Excellent, good one, guys. Uh, Pharaoh actually asks for prayer, asks for mercy. Um, the frogs are removed, leaving behind only the stench of death. Again, I think sim symbolic of what is going to be happening across this land over the rest of these plagues. Next, we've got some kind of biting, stinging insect. Interestingly, at the end, it doesn't seem to be removed. Does it continue there? Uh, for the first time, our magicians are a little bit stuck. They can't replicate this one. Have a look at verse 19 of chapter 8. The magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard. He would not listen, just as Yahweh had said. The fourth plague, we have some kind of flying, swarming insect. Uh, and here a distinction is introduced. Uh, not everyone in Egypt is afflicted by the plagues. There is a little people group in the land of Goshen, God's people, the Israelites. They are being protected. Have a look at verse 22. But on that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, Yahweh, am in this land. Yeah, as if it's not scary enough, now Yahweh is here, present in the midst of Egypt. 
There's wholesale destruction. The words are just amazing. It talks about all the crops are destroyed. I don't know if it is all, but we're talking about major destruction coming across Egypt. Pharaoh concedes. Have a look at verse 28. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to Yahweh your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. So he's willing to start making some deals, but uh, Yahweh's not making deals. Chapter 9, some kind of deadly disease afflicts the livestock of Egypt. But again, the livestock of Israel, they're quite okay. Uh, Yet Pharaoh remains hard of heart. Without any warning, now humans are starting to feel the brunt of the next plague, or perhaps a curse. Humans are afflicted with boils. Uh, I've heard some say this is perhaps a disease of anthrax that has generated because of all the rotting animals and uh, the destruction that's happened. I'm happy to accept that. I mean, still, God is in control with this. He is still bringing it on in his timing, isn't he? Uh, Even this time, a great note is made with the magicians. They may not be able to replicate it, but now they are coming under the full force of this plague as well. With plague seven, the heavens themselves open up. All of creation is involved. Uh, There's there's a remarkable offer of mercy. If, If you've read that, it's interesting to note. This time, the warning from Moses is, hail is going to come, so take your animals and put them under protection. A lot of the Egyptians ignore that, but some fear Yahweh. Some are starting to understand who Yahweh is. They bring their animals under and are protected. The Israelite animals are protected without saying. goes without saying. Um, but many do not. We get an incredible confession from Pharaoh at the end of this one, uh, where he recognises sin. Very interesting. Verse 27 of chapter 9. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. Yahweh is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to Yahweh, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Of course, that doesn't happen, does it? Uh, With the eighth plague, we have the locusts. Uh, This time, even the king's advisers go before Pharaoh, begging him to see sense. Don't you realise Egypt has been destroyed? Nothing remains. Let these people go. Why hold on to them? Have a look at verse 7 of chapter 10. Pharaoh's officials say to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship Yahweh their God. Do you not yet realise that Egypt is ruined? Yes. Yeah, the, the hardening, I, I wanted to talk a bit about the hardening of heart, but I, I wasn't going to. But it, it's, it's interesting, I've discovered this week, there's actually two words that are being used for the hardening of, of um, Pharaoh's heart. 
One is a word like strengthening, so that uh, if we're wanting to go and do something unpleasant, we've got to strengthen our resolve to go and do it. Uh, and in fact, that's the word that is used whenever Yahweh hardens his heart. It's like Yahweh strengthens his resolve to keep going with his plan. Um, the other word is a word for heavy, heavy-hearted. Uh, and that's the word that is used often, his heart is heavy, or Pharaoh heavies his heart. Uh, and I thought that was interesting because I understand Rebecca being a history teacher fills me in on these sorts of details. But uh, in the Egyptian, uh, the, the um, understanding of Egyptians, when they died, they would go before their gods or whatever and they would weigh their heart with a feather. Uh, and if it was lighter, then they were a good and go to wherever good Egyptians go to. And if it was heavier, then they would go to the bad place. They'll get eaten, get eaten. Um, I, I just think this is interesting. So we've got, we've got uh, Yahweh strengthening resolve and we've got Pharaoh heavying his heart, like becoming guilty. Uh, and I think that's an, a good distinction to make as we think. It's not just hardening hearts. There's two kind of aspects. I've spoken a bit long about that. Does that is that helpful? It is interesting what's happening to Pharaoh, yeah, and, and what God has predicted would happen beforehand. So thanks for that. Um, where were we up to? Locusts. And, yeah, Pharaoh sought forgiveness. Uh, and then without warning, we have three days of darkness. Uh, we're told it's so dark it can be felt. Um, again, historians suggest this may have been some kind of sandstorm. It's not uncommon there. It's a pretty amazing sandstorm that it was three days long. Uh, pretty amazing sandstorm that it sort of avoided Goshen again, but maybe. God's the God of creation. He can do what he will. Uh, it doesn't matter. He, he's still in control here. Though I think, again, the important thing is the, the very peak uh, divine power that the Egyptians looked to was the sun. Ra, the sun god. Um, in, in fact, Pharaoh himself was seen as the divine incarnation of Ra, the son of Ra. Uh, but here, what is happening for the Egyptian people is God says, well, I put the sun there, I'll take the sun away for three days. Uh, it's pretty impressive what's happening. And then, of course, we've got the final and worst plague announced in chapter 11. Uh, God has intended big plans for Israel to be a blessing, to be blessed and to be a blessing to the world for life and fertility. Pharaoh denies that. Pharaoh goes, nah, that's not happening to my people, they're mine. Uh, and so God strikes at the very same, the death of the firstborn. Amazing stuff. Uh, Pharaoh may have begun with this arrogant question of who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Oh, I'm not going to obey him. Um, he's not in any doubt anymore. Uh, in his hardened of heart, he's resolved to hold on to the Israelites. All Egypt lies in ruins. I think the Egyptians themselves are going, my goodness, we have a madman at our helm. Uh, they can't understand why he would hold on to them. Yahweh is the almighty creator God and Pharaoh is not. Pure and simple. Uh, Yahweh is, the, the understanding of Yahweh is now so filled with content uh, he even wields creation as a weapon against Pharaoh who has nothing to say or stand in the way. Pharaoh may not know Yahweh. Well, he does now. He knows Yahweh. All Egypt knows who Yahweh is. All Israel knows who Yahweh is. The whole world 
knows who Yahweh is as this story ripples down through history into all cultures across our world. Making sense? Pretty big stuff. There's the plagues. There's plenty more we could say, okay? Uh, But I'm not. I want to now just take a step back and look at the bigger picture and have a think about, well, what's actually happening through these plagues? I started reading this and I thought, well, these are pretty major stuff. Ten plagues, it's it's like overkill. Does God really need to bring Egypt to its knees in this way? I mean, he could have, um, what, raised up a new pharaoh and uh, Israel could have left. He could have softened his heart and let Israel go. Uh, He could have even raised up another nation to conquer Egypt and Israel go through that, but he doesn't. It is through these massive ten plagues that um, he, he uh, frees Israel and brings Egypt to her knees. So uh, what's happening? Well, I think firstly, let's ask the question, who are these plagues directed at? Now, first and foremost, we know they're directed at Pharaoh. We've already heard his arrogant claim, who is Yahweh, um, But it's not just Pharaoh, the Egyptians are also learning who Yahweh is uh, and uh, who who he is going to be. Uh, We could go back to chapter 7, but I won't right now. Uh, But Yahweh, uh, um, Pharaoh's denial of who God is, is so that even the Egyptians would know who he is. And that's what's happening here. Uh, the plagues are also for Israel. Uh, they may sit protected in the land of Goshen. But have a look at uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians." and how I perform my signs among them, and that you may know, you Israelites, you may know that I am Yahweh. See, I suspect over time there's been a little bit of a loss in their their cultural memory of who this God is, this, this Yahweh who created the world, this Yahweh who's made these promises to Abraham. Over the, the many hundreds of years that they have been in Egypt, some of that has been lost, but no more they too will learn that Yahweh is the mighty and amazing God who has rescued them from out, out from under Pharaoh, uh, has made such a commitment to their forefathers, forefathers and as such is committed to them today as well and they are to pass that on down through the generations. But it doesn't stop there. The plagues are also for the world so that Yahweh will be known throughout the whole world. Back in chapter 9, verse 13. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, This is what Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In all the earth. 
I, I think it's interesting. Um, I, I, I started to think about how, how this story is known in many ways. Movies are a great cultural way. I, I, I was just thinking there's many movies where they have these biblical themes of these, the destruction. Uh, apocalyptic movies these days are very big. Uh, the old Ghostbusters, uh, you know, there's going to be plagues of biblical proportions directly relating to this. Uh, the mummy, uh, all those plagues in Egypt, I mean, the, the links were really obvious. Uh, it's amazing. We do know, you know, Yahweh's name is known throughout the earth because of this story, even today. Uh, it's quite amazing. So who are the plagues directed at? Pharaoh, Egypt, Israel, the world? Uh, why does Yahweh bring such overwhelming chaos onto Egypt? Uh, you know, we've got these plagues of blood and insects, disease, storm, darkness, death. It's just massive. Uh, each plague reveals an aspect of chaos, of creation that is out of control, out of boundaries. Back in Genesis 1, of course, we saw God made everything in its place and it was ordered and it was good. Um, but now there is chaos. And Pharaoh has taken it upon himself to subvert uh, God's good plans, hasn't he? He's engaged in anti-life, anti-blessing, as he's blocking what God wants for these people. Uh, we, we could say, I guess, Pharaoh is a kind of anti-Christ, in a way. Uh, he's an agent of disorder and has set himself up openly to deny what God will do in blessing the world. Who is Yahweh? Why should I obey him? If Pharaoh wants a world without God, he's getting a taste of it, isn't he? Um, and yet, surprisingly, God doesn't just let it happen. It's limited. It is just a taste. And each time, despite Pharaoh begging for mercy, seeking forgiveness, asking for prayer, each time he hardens his heart. He refuses to acknowledge God. But each time God still ends the curse. He brings it to an end. And still Pharaoh continues in his hard-nosed objection of God. And finally, well, what's the purpose of these plagues? So we've looked at who are the plagues directed at, why such overwhelming chaos? What is the purpose of these plagues? At one point, I guess we might say, well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's for freedom. Let my people go. That's the big catch cry so that Israel might go free. But in fact, that's not the whole catch cry, is it? Let my people go so that they may worship me. Freedom for worship. So that my people may serve me. So that my people might live. So that my people may enjoy life. I was talking to a mate of mine um, the other week and I said, oh, I've got this, you know, I've got the best passage of the Old Testament to preach on. And he goes, oh, Exodus 19. I said, No. <laughs> What are, you, what are you talking about? But he's right. Um, Exodus 19 can't happen before the plagues. Exodus 19 is that great high point where God finally brings his people across the desert to Mount Sinai, to the foot of the mountain. He gathers them around himself like chickens or little chicks around a chicken and he finally he declares to them, I am your God, you are my people. And, and this great commitment to one another is strengthened and happens. It, my friend is absolutely right. That is the high point. That's the gospel of the Old Testament where God declares his ownership, protection and blessing on his people. But that can't happen without 
bringing Israel out. So I think the two are quite united. Um, but the point is, what's the purpose of this? It's not for freedom, it's for worship. It's to bring these people back into their relationship with God. Making sense? Still got, we're travelling okay? Okay. So I want to move on to something important now, and it's the, the uh, fourth question on the uh, page there, which is how does this event inform our knowledge of Jesus? Now, we, we could spend a lot more time looking at Exodus and there's a lot more to be plumbed in the depths there, okay? Uh, but as Christians, there's more for us to consider as we turn our faces, our eyes to the New Testament, isn't there? We're not Jews, we are Christians, and so I think we can't just leave it in the Old Testament. We've got to start thinking, okay, what does this New Testament bring to bear? What does this have to offer in our understanding of who Jesus is? Because if it's through these plagues that Yahweh will be known throughout all the earth, if it's through these plagues that Yahweh will pursue blessing and life for his chosen people, if it's through these plagues that Yahweh will rescue the Israelites for worship, where they can serve, live and enjoy, well, listen now to what Jesus prays for. Turn with me, let's, let's jump up to John, John 17. John 17, just beginning at verse 1. So after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This, uh, this whole chapter, all of John 17, is this massive prayer that Jesus prays on the night before his death. Uh, it's a great prayer. Here, here is Jesus facing the crucifixion facing all that that holds, and he is pausing to pray. And we know the story, he goes off in the garden, his disciples are to watch and pray as well. Um, we're not looking at all of it, but just the first five verses, I was reflecting on some interesting themes that are here in these first few verses. Um, the time, Father, the time has come, it's his death. He knows that his time is ready. I think Jesus faces the biggest battle there in the garden as he considers, will he be obedient to his father? He is, he, he is obedient. He goes on to his death. Um, so first, verse, verse 1, what does he pray? Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Here we see God's purpose is that all should honour Jesus even as they honour the father. And the very event by which Jesus would be lifted up on the cross in such humiliation and complete shame is the very same event for which he will be praised around the world 
as by men and women whose sins he bears on that cross, who brings forgiveness to those people. Just as the plagues show that Yahweh rescues, that he be known throughout the earth, here we see that too is Jesus' prayer. His obedient humiliation, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, all of it is to bring greater glory and honour to Jesus and I think that he be known throughout the earth. Secondly, look at verse 2. Jesus continues, For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Here we see God's plan is for Jesus to give eternal life to those who the Father has given to Jesus. Uh, this, this is the fulfilment of this promise that was made to Abraham thousands of years before to bless the whole world. It's now happening through Jesus. He is giving eternal life. He is giving blessing to, the, to people who the Father has given to him. Just as the plagues were to show that Yahweh rescues, that blessing and life will overcome chaos, Jesus prays to bless with the gift of eternal life. It is about blessing and life in Jesus. Finally, verse 3, Jesus prays, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Get this, Jesus reveals eternal life is not about living forever on some cloud with harps and wings and doing whatever, or church forever, it's nothing like that. Living forever... Eternal life is about a personal knowledge, a personal relationship with the everlasting Creator Father. Isn't that huge? Eternal life is life found in a personal relationship with the Creator of the universe. What could be better? Uh, this is eternal life, to know the only true God, the one we now call our Father, the one we can pray to. Relationship, life, being friends with God, to know and love God, to be intimate with Yahweh, to enjoy him forever. That is everlasting life. Just as the plagues showed that Yahweh rescues the Israelites not just for freedom, but for worship. So Jesus here reveals that eternal life is found in a personal knowledge of God, to serve God, to live for God, to enjoy God. A big picture, isn't it? How are we going? Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's think about some implications for today. Probably don't need to suggest any. It's just too overwhelming anyway, isn't it? Throughout the, uh, the rest of the Old Testament, the plagues of Egypt are the great defining moment of Israel's history. Uh, the Exodus shapes Israel's identity, their national life, their hopes for the future, more than any other event, arguably perhaps, but I think more than any other event. Who is Israel? Israel are the people that Yahweh brought out of Egypt by mighty signs and wonders. How should Israel live? Israel should live as the rescued people of Yahweh, reflecting the character of the one who brought them out of Egypt, 
so that they might enjoy life in the new land. Amos, Micah, Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all take the rescue from Egypt as that great high point where God acted to make Israel his people and as the event that laid upon them the obligations of loyalty and obedience so that they could enjoy life to the full. Life with all its fullness as God designed from the very beginning. All blessings. And yet for today, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, isn't it? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the great defining moment for our history, for our identity. It's the cross that shapes our identity more than any other event in history. And as I reflected on this and as I close, I thought... Man, I can't leave this without going to some of Paul's words in Romans. Will you turn with me to Romans 8, just to finish with? Romans 8. And uh, again, we could do a lot more here, but let's just start at verse 31. Paul writes, What then shall we say in response to all this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also, not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ who died? More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons... Neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think there's just a couple of implications that I want to leave us with to ponder. Firstly, this morning, have you been caught up with the bigger picture of what God is on about in your life? If you've embraced Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, it's so much more than just being saved from sin. It is being saved from sin, and that is important, but it's more than just being saved from sin. Uh, You know, you need your sins forgiven, but it is so that you can be friends with God, to know and love God, to be intimate with God, to enjoy him forever. And the plagues teach us that rescue is for worship and Jesus teaches us that true worship is in knowing him forever. Have you found him? Do you enjoy him? And secondly, are you encouraged to know that God's purposes for this world cannot be frustrated? I know it looks like they can be. We look around our world, there is suffering. We hear our news reports. We hear terrible stories of what is happening. Some of us struggle with health. 
Some of us struggle with relational conflicts. Some of us struggle with many more things. And we feel, we wonder, where is God in all this? But God's not promised health and wealth and well-being for us all the time. He's promised something even better. He's promised blessing. He's promised intimacy. He has promised uh, that together with him, we have complete future of joy, of all meaning that is found with him. That is what is exciting. The plagues teach us that God is on about blessing and life and nothing will stop that. And let me tell you again what Paul said, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hold on to that, friends. Hold on to that. Do you know Jesus? How about we pray? Father God, we just come before you and praise you for who you are. We love the picture of the Old Testament of what Moses reveals of who you are, the mighty Yahweh, who blesses his people and brings curse on those who curse him. Thank you for Moses. And thank you for what he teaches us about Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for life and blessing. Thank you that nothing will stop in the way, will stop you doing what you wish with your world. Thank you that you are the king, you are God, and we are your people. Amen.